Well, a good evening to you. It's good to be in Minnesota. It's uh, been a good day of travel, and in spite of COVID and in spite of elections and all the other things that went with 2020, we're glad we are here. This is uh, not my first time in Minnesota. It might be my seventh. And, uh, you know, I was glad to see today as I was flying to Rochester that Minnesota actually has dirt. Uh, every other time I've been here, it's been ice and snow, and I never saw it the way I saw it today. It's uh, it's glad to, I, I'm enjoying seeing what you live among. I've never saw that quite before. First time visiting this congregation, I've been here in this Bible school several times back when I was a lot younger. I knew Dennis from back then, and glad to see him still here. And Yolanda served in Guatemala. She's not here today, but she we got to know her fairly well there. So there's a couple people that I came knowing I would know, and I'm not sure if I know anybody else, but I'm sure I'll know you a little better by the end of the week. Uh, I'm glad we have the ultimate connection tonight. All of us were lost, all of us were found, all of us are paid for by the blood of Christ, and we're all following the same Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's not a good enough connection, then nothing else can take its place. Um, you'll notice that I'm wearing a mask here this evening. I thought I may as well just let you know why. I am the person your governor is worried about. I was in Pennsylvania last week and missed a sort of a COVID spike. And so when you shake 60 people's hand every night and go to people's homes and then come out here to your congregation, I just, I'm, I'm concerned about Dennis and maybe the rest of you. Let's keep, keep each other healthy. And I'm not trying to make any statements. That's just why I would do it sometimes here, being careful. I'll just give you a brief personal introduction. Uh, since you're going to have to listen to me a lot this week, I figured you may also know who I am. Um, I am from Wills Ridge, which is Floyd County, Virginia. It's a one-stoplight county. We're a very rural place and love to keep it that way. We enjoy Floyd. Um, my wife and I met in Guatemala back in 97. We were married in 99. Went back to serve again in 2001 about. Served for about 10 or 12 years. Four children born down there, two boys, two girls. And then moved back home in 2012, and we've had two children since. That gives a total of six. The oldest is 19, and then the youngest is two. So that's sort of a span of ages we have in our house. Um, obviously, they're not going to be coming out here this week. I work at a lumber mill and uh, do various things there. I build produce crates, 40-bushel crates they use for storing sweet potatoes. We're selling truckloads of crates down to North Carolina and I think we've made almost 10,000 crates this year, and uh, so that's sort of what I do. I also do truck dispatch. We have five trucks in the company, and I brought that work along this week. I'll try to keep up with that while I'm here. So, uh, yeah, life is full and busy and interesting. Not easy to leave sometimes for a week. In fact, my one of my sons told me earlier this spring when I was going somewhere, they said, Dad, why do you have to go? They already have Jesus in their hearts. You don't have to go help them any, and... Uh, but we go because we're invited and it's a blessing. And it's a good opportunity for me. It's no sacrifice. I get to come and think and have time to pray and study. And it's a good thing when life is as busy as life can get. These weeks are a blessing for me. So I'm looking forward to this week. And my prayer is for myself and hopefully for the church. That we could end the week just with a greater sense of the presence of God and maybe a deeper faith and expectancy of what God is doing and the fact that he is bringing things to a conclusion. There's things we can be excited about going forward in this uh, plan that he has laid out. So the message tonight, I would like to step back and sort of look at a big picture and something that God is doing by stages. He's revealing by stages. And we find ourselves in this 
long-term plan that God is working out. And uh, the thing we're going to talk about has always existed. And God has hinted at it. It's been revealed in Jesus Christ. And I think we're getting close to the most full revelation of this. And we're looking forward to it and excited about that. And there's a couple of reasons I think a message like this is important. Uh, one is simply because the politics around us have gotten very intense. I don't know how it is in Minnesota, but I know how it is in Virginia. And the comments and the discussion and the hopes and the fears and the, the everything that's happened in the last couple of months. And I've heard of Trump caravans. I've heard of Trump flotillas, a bunch of boats out in the, you know, in a river somewhere for Trump, Trump signs and things. But only recently I heard of a Trump buggy train, a bunch of Amish that went out with Trump signs and paraded down somewhere to, to support Trump. And, uh, so it's, it's a lot of that kind of pressure that we live in and face. And, and I found myself the morning after the election going to my phone and looking what had happened the day before. And I had to remind myself, I'm not on this side or this side. I'm not part of this thing. I'm, I belong to something else. And I have to, we have to remind ourselves of that sometimes. So that's one reason I think this message is important. The other reason is simply because our understanding of being a Christian needs to be much bigger than just getting our name in a book, avoiding hell, making sure we uh, don't go to hell when we die. And when we come to Christ, we're coming into something huge, something amazing, something uh, eternal and permanent. We're a new kind of people. We're part of an eternal plan that God is doing. And we represent God, and we can be happy and excited about that. And so it's really important to be know where we stand and be solid in what we believe. Um, Jesus said, "Behold, I come quickly. Let uh, hold that fast which thou hast, and no man take thy crown." I believe the shakeup we felt in 2020 is simply a small tremor in view of the shakeups that are coming. And so these things simply should remind us that uh, we don't belong here, and there's. There's a greater day coming for us as God's people. So I'd like to invite you to Revelation 4 this evening to start. And uh, I guess you could just call this message a place in the kingdom of God. And I'd like to start in Revelation 4. And I believe that everything I have to say tonight begins here and ends here. This is the great starting point and this is the great ending point. And we're going to take it from... The full circle. I mean, I guess you could look at it that way. And everything we talked about this week could fit inside this view of, of things. I'd like to go ahead and read 11 verses here and maybe uh, make a few comments about what John saw in this passage. And if I could just at the outset order a cup of water, that would be a real blessing. If somebody would mind doing that, I'd appreciate it. <clears throat> so John, Revelation 4, verse verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of the trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiments, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, 
And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. Thank you. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him and they were full of eyes within and they were rest not day and night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fell down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So that was Revelation chapter 4. There's two things in verse 1 that, without spending a lot of time, I think are beautiful snippets of truth. The first one is simply that the door that Adam closed is now shown to be open. And I believe when Adam chose to sin, he shut a door that had no knob on the inside. It was not up to Adam to open it back up. And unless God would have chosen to do it, uh, it would forever have been shut. And here the door was open. It's not a window, it's a door. It's not something just to look through. It's something man can go through and, and pass through. So that's one thing that's beautiful. The second thing is this. The voice that John heard said, Come up to where I am. Now, that's interesting if you look at the Old Covenant and how things worked back then. If you would do a study of how God revealed himself to humanity all through the Old Covenant, you would see things like Jacob. So Jacob is on his first night running away from home from his brother, sleeping with his head on a stone. And God comes to him, and there's this ladder that goes from earth to heaven, angels going up and down, and God is at the top of the ladder. It's like he stepped through the door for Jacob and is talking to Jacob from up there and revealing his will to Jacob and says what he did. You can look at the story of Israel. God came down to Mount Sinai and spoke to them, thunders, lightnings. He came to the burning bush, and there he was, and God God spoke to Moses out of that bush. There's Isaiah with God in the temple. There's Jeremiah and Ezekiel that saw things like that. It's always God coming to this side, God coming here to show himself to men. Then you get to the New Covenant, and you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and Paul writes, I knew a man caught up to the third heaven, and hearing things unlawful for a man to utter. And here in Revelation, this voice has said, John, come up here. And so what Jesus did was to open that door, and now it's us getting a glimpse to his side. It's not only God coming to reveal himself here, it's God actually taking a human being and giving him a look inside there. It's a beautiful thing. So here's what John describes, starting in verse 2. And if you look at this passage, it looks to me like he's describing things in an orderly way, not from left to right, not from right to left, but from the center and then outward and then outward and then outward like circles after you throw a pebble in a pond. What's the most important out to the most, the, the greatest around? That's how it looks like to me. So the first thing he sees is a throne, verse 2. I saw a throne set in heaven. Now this throne is the center of the picture. This is the epicenter of everything. It's the source of all things. This throne that was set in heaven is the seat of authority. 
The one that sits on this throne can command and control everything, everywhere. And I believe this is a throne that Satan wanted. He led an insurrection to get it. He had an idea. He would exalt himself and somehow usurp that. And praise the Lord, God kept it. It's it's not the enemy on the throne. God is still there. And as long as he sits there, all will be well in heaven and earth. It's a place of judgment. Everything with a moral responsibility to God will give answer before that throne one day. It's a source of life. If you look in Revelation 22, it says, I saw a river of water of life. And did you ever notice where it starts? It comes from beneath the throne of God. And everything that it touches along the the river, there's a tree of life. You go back to Ezekiel, I think in the 40s somewhere, there's a picture of a temple with something very similar. Water flowing out of the temple and everywhere in the desert it goes, it brings life to it. Beautiful picture. God is a source of life. The throne is a source. It's the center. It's the axis. It's the hub of all that is. Down in Cusco in Peru, where the Incas used to live, still do, they thought that Cusco was the center of the world. They called it the belly button of the world. They thought that everything around it was around the the centrality of Cusco. Well, as soon as the Spaniards showed up, they realized that's not the way it was. Uh, Down in Guatemala, if you drive north, you'll see road markers. You can go north. Marker 98, 99, 100, 200, 500, 600, 650 or 60 some, then you run into te- uh, Mexico and it stops. New system on the other side. You go south, 180, 185, and it stops because El Salvador border is there, so it stops. And that's in the, in the center of Guatemala, in the palace, there's a room. And in the room, there's a stake in the floor, and that's the point that all the roads are measured from. And that's the way it works. That's the system. But that system has no authority outside the boundaries of that little Central American country. It stops. But the throne of God is the center of everything in heaven, in earth, in universe. Everywhere that anything is, the throne has everything to do with it. And it is in control of it. And everything is held to its its, uh, authority. He describes one who sat on the throne. No figure described here, just a color. It's a red Brownish red, maybe, of jasper, sardin stone. I'm not sure. I've never seen these stones. But but the, the being sitting here is eternity embodied. This is the the probably the best view of eternity because this is the being that never began and never ends. He is the eternal God. This This God is the sum of all the energy and all the power in all the universe. I've thought of it this way. If everything flowed from God, as God is creator, could God have created something that in its sum total is greater than himself? I'm not sure. I don't think he could. Um, it's an amazing thing when you think of the power is locked up in the atom and the kind of little bit of explosive material that levels four square miles of city back in World War II. And to think of all the stars and all the galaxies and all the matter that ever was and God yet being greater than the sum of all of that. It's an amazing thought. God is the standard of all the virtues that man admires. We admire justice and love and mercy and long-suffering. And God is the, the standard. The, he is the uh, 
Well, he is the originator of the very idea, and he is a measurement of all of it. He's the creator and father of all living things and inanimate things. And out of this throne, there's thunder and lightnings. It's a frightening picture of a God who is not passive. He is a God who is planning and doing and acting and commanding, and, and he's in control. Chapter 5 expands the picture of the throne. Uh, we're not going to go there and read it. You can if you want. But it says, In the midst of the throne stood a lamb as it had been slain. And to me it's a beautiful thought that the majestic God, as the center and creator of all that is, and yet right beside him, the very thing that man needs the most, his salvation, his intercessor. And ever after that, in Revelation, it says, the throne of God and of the Lamb. They're always together because both are there. It's a beautiful thought. Then uh, we can keep on looking around the throne. There's the four beasts in the midst of and around the throne. Remember what Ezekiel saw? He saw beings with faces like lion, ox, man, eagle. These are the same faces that John sees. Remember what, what Isaiah heard when he saw God in the temple? The angels singing, holy, holy, or saying, crying out, holy. They're still saying, holy, holy in this passage. Here they're in motion. They're crying out. They're worshiping. It talks about the 24 elders. I guess in my view, the song that comes in 5, chapter 8 to 10, describes who they are. It says, these are the redeemed of the earth who maybe were once, were once sinful men like us, but were redeemed by God. And there's 24 of them. There's 12 Old Testament tribes. There were 12 New Testament apostles. And perhaps this at least represents the, the saved of both, of both covenants in a special place here, uh, worshiping God, um, casting crowns and worshiping the Lamb. Talks about seven lamps of fire, the spirits of God, the multifaceted, empowering, enabling, Spirit of God. The sea of glass. In Revelation 15, it talks about that. The saints were standing on the sea of glass, worshiping God. Those that had gotten the victory over the beast and his image. Beyond that, you can read 5 and 6 and go on, but it talks about 10,000 times 10,000 of angels. I guess 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. And then every thousand, thousand besides, there's another million besides. So we've got lots of angels then it says every creature in heaven and earth, that's the heavenly creation and the earthly creation from the highest angel to the probably the lowest microbe perhaps, all worshiping toward the throne because God deserves that. This is a throne room of heaven. Now can you imagine what it would be like to live there, to experience society there around that place? Uh, it's a place where everything is under God's authority, in, in order, in uh, accepting of God's will, filled with God's life. His character is the law. His love is reigning supreme. There's, it's a sin-free place. It's a beautiful place to live. And we call that heaven. Jesus came and described it. And Jesus talked much about the kingdom of heaven. And... Uh, you know, I guess the, this society that, that, that lives in, under God's influence can only be heaven because it's completely and perfectly under the will of God. And that's what makes it what it is. Uh, this is almost sacrilegious. I, I saw a, a little quote somewhere that thousands are flocking to Jesus when they realize there's no politics in heaven. 
I wish we would come to Jesus, but for different reasons. But the point is, there is no politics in heaven, because heaven is not a democracy. Heaven is a theocracy. And God says it, and that's the way it is, and that's the way we should live. And that's the point. That's the reason that heaven is heaven, is because God's word holds complete authority, and everybody is okay with that and accepting of that. There's nothing but cooperation from the highest angel to the newest arrival. There's nothing but acceptance and agreement and submission to this one on the throne. And that's what makes this place what it is, as God's life fills this place. We call it heaven. Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, where God is the king and his word is the law, and his life fills everything in that presence. Now, I guess there was a time when heaven and earth were much more seamless than now. Uh, you know, sometimes I wonder if God made the universe, where did he put it? And I sort of picture it like a glass fishbowl on a table. And so it's surrounded, and it's got its own little thing inside, and the fish can't get out. They can hardly see out, but anything outside I can see in it, no problem. And I sort of picture us that way here this evening. Uh, God can look in. Angels can look in, maybe. I don't know how it all works out there. I'm just imagining here. But I think that there was a time before man sinned that heaven and earth were much more seamless than now. God walked with men. Man had an open face-to-face communion with God. And, uh, of course, that stopped when man sinned. And after a first couple of millennia, it seems like people pretty much forgot because he had the evil that preceded the flood until the flood came. But God found one person, Noah, that found grace in God's sight. After the flood, Noah's descendants quickly forgot. So had another period of time, and people were quickly forgetting and going away. But, but he found Abraham, a friend of God. And that's when God began to work again to establish his name and his presence on the earth. It probably wasn't until after Israel came out of Egypt that God really began to do something to put a permanent uh, temple or interaction with man in place on the earth in a way that uh, was an unfolding of his plan. I believe what God was doing is simple. What God wanted to do was introduce heaven to earth so that he could introduce people to heaven. He wanted us to learn to know him so he could bring us back. That was his goal. And so uh, when Moses uh, went up to God on Mount Sinai, God gave him laws and God gave him a plan for a tabernacle. And, you know, I, I went to Bible school here, so I shouldn't confess this, but I always thought that tabernacle studies were the most boring studies that could exist uh, for a New Testament Christian because they're old, they're, you know, from the old era, there's so many details and things that, you know, it doesn't really affect my life. But it's fascinating. And it's only recently I realized something. Maybe you knew this all along, and I didn't. And so I'll expose my ignorance here. But when, when God designed the tabernacle, he put something unique in it, a shadow of something in it. And in Hebrews 8, it says this in 4 and 5, the priesthood, talking about the priesthood, serves unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. So sort of like the way things work up here was projected here. Uh, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. So it's very important that Moses would take that blueprint that he received from God and make it, make it just like that. Because it meant something. It was important that it meant something. So, uh, I'm not going to ask you questions, 
but if you could recite for me the elements that we saw in Revelation 4, what would they be? We saw the throne of God, the four winged creatures, beasts, seven lamps of fire, the sea of glass before the throne. Uh, later talks about the altar of heaven where the angel offered incense with the prayers of saints that went up before God. Uh, how brushed up are you on your tabernacle studies? I had to print out a copy to see this. But if you'd walk into the tabernacle, the first thing you'd come to, I believe, if I remember right, was the altar of burnt offerings. That was where the beasts were killed and so on. I believe the next thing was the bronze laver, the, the bowl of water there before the, the the door of the holy place. If you step inside the door into the holy place, on one side you had the table of showbread and 12 loaves on that. On this side you had seven lamps that had to be kept burning all the time. Then you had a thick veil there between the holy place and the holiest place. And inside the holiest place, you had the, the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark, the two cherubs, which is their wings, cherubim. And then the covered, the curtains on the side, you had two cherubims with their wings outstretched. And so you start comparing these things, you start seeing a correlation. Now, the dwelling place of God in the tabernacle was the Ark. Uh, around God's throne in heaven, you had four beasts on the ark, and around the ark were four beasts. Images of two in the in the uh, curtains and two on the ark. Uh, outside, you have the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne in Revelation. You have the seven lampstands here. You have the 24 elders around the throne. You had 12 loaves on the table of showbread, which represented then the 12 tribes, but that was before the New Testament era. You have the sea of glass that would correspond very well to the brazen laver of water. There's two things in heaven that are on earth that were not in heaven. One was the altar of sacrifice. That's gone. That's taken care of. Jesus fulfilled that. And the sacrifice is now on the throne with God. And you don't have the veil anymore either. That's taken care of in Christ and done away with. But other than that, God projected something of the throne room of heaven into the tabernacle when that design was put together and and man built it. And that's beautiful because what God did was made something on earth that he could look at and say, here's my dwelling place. And men could look at and say, here's my place of interacting with God. And it was a place they could take with them, a place they could set up. And it was like God's little... He owned a piece of property down there. It's like his little uh, kingdom. There was the center of it right there. God took it a step further. In Deuteronomy 11, it says, Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul, bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontless before your eyes, and so on. After giving all these instructions of how to live and take seriously the commands of God, he says this, that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. Now, some would look at this and say it, it speaks of length of days. You'll live a long time. But I look at this and think this is also speaking about quality of life. As, as people would come under the authority of God and say yes to it and agree to it and obey it, something of the very presence and blessing of God would be upon their life and their country And they could experience a little bit of what heaven is like because they're also under the authority of 
Almighty God. And so God added that blessing to them. I believe the same is true for us here in the New Testament age. The tabernacle was a symbolic thing. The symbol of heaven, and I guess it was also a symbol of man. The three parts of the tabernacle, the outer court and the two inner courts, would very well uh, symbolize the way we are. And the fact that God dwelt there and he wants to dwell in us would also be a symbol of this. And so if you can picture the tabernacle as being like heaven and man, that's the bringing them together, that's what he wanted to do. But that was a that was a temporal thing. That was a temporary dwelling place. But Jesus came teaching a new thing. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John came preaching the same thing. Jesus prayed, thy will be done in heaven as it is in earth. In earth as it is in heaven, sorry. And when Jesus taught the kingdom of God is like this and like that, he wasn't referring to what's going on up there. He's referring to that kingdom brought here. And that's the the greater fulfillment. So we have this light coming on, this this greater glow. We had it at a low state there, and it's getting brighter as we go into it. And we see it here uh, revealed in a fresh new way. The tabernacle was a dead material thing. And Jesus came to bring a living thing, the life, the joy, the fellowship that goes on up there. He wants us to experience here. Not just a a little building to go into and remember something, but actually a living presence that brings the life and the fullness of the kingdom to, to earth. I enjoy studying Daniel, and I don't know much about Daniel. There's a lot there I wish I knew, understood more deeply. But here's, here's a beautiful uh, picture that, that came from Daniel's description of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You remember that story? Nebuchadnezzar saw this image 90 feet high that was uh, head of gold and then silver and then bronze and then feet of clay and iron. And then he says he saw a stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands that rolled down and struck the feet of the image and the whole thing crumbled and the stone grew until it filled all the earth. This is how Daniel interpreted that that dream. He said this in Daniel 2.44. And in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all those kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. There's two things I want us to think about. One is simply this, that when God does this thing of setting up a kingdom among men, a kingdom that we can be a part of, and and takes it forward until it goes into eternity again with him, uh, this is not a human plan. It's not a human design. This is something God is doing, and God will not fail in that endeavor. And so he's doing it. He's moving it forward. And praise the Lord, we can be part. But if today you choose not to be, it's not going to slow God's plan down. He's going to keep going because he has purpose to do it. And there's no man that can stop it. And it will surely happen. The second thing that I find unique here is the thought that well, picture it this way. Picture a high mountain, so high that people can't climb it, so high that people can't uh, study it. It's up there, you couldn't touch it. And a stone breaks loose. It comes down and lands in the valley below. And the people rush out of the town. And they see it. And they touch it. And say, I'm touching it. It was there, now it's here. 
And it's the same stuff. I can study it. And when I study this, I know what that is. And the same thing that's there is now here. And the kingdom that Jesus came to establish very much operates that way. The same principles that rule up there is what rules here. The same submission, the same obedience is word that is obvious and automatic around the throne of God is enforced here. And we accept that. That's part of being part of the kingdom of God is that we accept that. The same devotion that happens around the throne should be happening here tonight. And I believe it did, at least in a small way. And I believe God, Jesus, came to establish a kingdom of new men, new women that would accept this lordship in their life and accept that word and that authority in their life. And that authority governs in our hearts. I believe the main subject of Jesus' teaching was how can men live under God's authority even while we live in an imperfect world? And the gospel is not only a question of how can we go to heaven when we die, it's also how can men live here like like heaven works, even here on earth. So God's will is my mandate. God's word is my law. What a privilege to live like that. Now, we still live in a very corrupt world. But I believe that here together, we can enjoy a little bit of foretaste of what that might be like because those are principles are being applied here. Now, we're far from a perfect people. We have issues sometimes. We struggle with each other sometimes. But sometimes it's the people from the outside that look in and remind us what we have. My wife met a couple at a yard sale several years ago. And invited them to church and they came. We had revival meetings. In fact, Glenn Horse was preaching that time. And they were captivated. They, they came back again and again. They went to some of our homes and visited. They came to some fellowship meals and they, they interacted with us for quite a while. And one day he said, you know, he, he sells things on the internet. He would buy things and then resell them. And he said, it's a, Everybody's out to get you. Everybody's out to take advantage of you. Now, he said, I've trained myself to be suspicious of everyone. But he said, you people are so trusting. You're so open with each other. Your children play together. You seem to get to interact and you no, 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 uh, hesitations or barriers. He said, I envy that. And I believe what he was seeing was not just a Mennonite thing. I think he was seeing some of the results of when a people come together and agree to live like God wants them to live. And that's what he was tasting. And that's what he felt. There's many things we could say. I don't even see a clock. Oh, there's a clock. I'd like to mention a few things yet about this kingdom. One is the spiritual kingdom. There's a lot of false ideas out there what this kingdom is to be. It's not a political entity. It's not a geographic location. It's not a building. It's not an authority structure. The church is something beyond that. Jesus said the kingdom is within or among you. It's not a people group. The world is used to hearing about the Muslims fighting the Christians and the Christians fighting the whatever. And they, there's this political view of what church is. Jesus had a very different concept of that. It's something that can happen when you and I 
bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ and the kingdom comes. And it's when we relate together as God wants us to, the kingdom is there. It's an issue of the heart, not of location. And I believe that whenever the gospel goes into a new area, the kingdom stretches and takes over that area. In a sense, not a geographic sense, but it goes wherever a Christian goes. It goes wherever a church is planted. That's where the kingdom of God is. We're ambassadors of this new thing. It's an eternal nation, a kingdom. All other kingdoms will be overthrown. It's good for us to remember, especially good right now, post-election 2020, to remember that this kingdom is independent from earthly government. Uh, Daniel pointed this out. God allows human governments. He, it's better than anarchy. He wants order. But uh, the, the church of Jesus Christ is never beholden to it. It's never dependent on it. It doesn't require their support to exist. Friendly governments can't buy it. Unfriendly governments can't coerce it, can't destroy it. You know, I just need to say that the fact that Biden won makes no difference to the kingdom of God. Uh, Some people are scared of socialism and communism and radicalism. But even those things will not slow the true kingdom of God. Uh, God is in it and it's going to move forward. It transcends earthly governments. In other words, it does not bow to expediency. The Hebrew children faced it. The apostles faced it. Daniel faced it. The Amish homeschoolers faced it. The Christian baker faced it. And more and more we will face it. The fact that we will be pressed to bow to the expediency of the times and expediency of the governments and the the laws that Humanistic, carnal men put in place. No, it often seems like God's kingdom is always under attack. Sometimes we wonder, can it exist? I'm often, I, th- I think we would be encouraged to remember that, that good was here before evil. Sin is the imposter. Uh, the evil that is in the world is the trespasser. And God is fully capable of of taking care of that. The good was here first. The good will be here last. We just need to stick with him until he gets his plan carried out. Now, much more could be said because this is one of the main themes in all of Scripture. But I'd like to conclude by saying a few things about this. Uh, The main theme is the kingdom, but the most beautiful part of the kingdom is the king. And praise the Lord for the king. And we can't receive the kingdom without receiving the king because he is at the head of it, the center of it. He is Savior. He is Lord. He is Lamb. We receive him as Savior and Lord and firstborn of every creature. And wherever the kingdom of God goes on all the earth, one thing we all have in common, I hope, is that we love the king because he is worthy of our love and devotion. Without getting bogged down in scripture and details, I'd like to make several little statements here about our king, Jesus Christ. The first thing is this, our King Jesus is powerful enough for whatever it requires to get us from here to there. Uh, if, if we long for heaven, if we long for God's presence, we can know that, that Jesus longs for it for us even more deeply than we do. He really wants us to make it. He really wants us to get there. And he's promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And whatever obstacle could possibly turn us aside, There is no obstacle that can stand before his presence. And so if we can go through life with him, not separate from him, but with him, there is no barrier that can stand in our way because Jesus is powerful enough. Scripture teaches that. 
Second thing is that Jesus is lowly enough. And uh, what we know of his power and majesty makes his humility so stunning. Uh, he could have come so differently. He could have come with show and with power and with, with volcanoes and shooting stars, but he just sort of slipped in quietly under the radar in a manger, just a couple of angels, um, to very humble people. Unannounced, unimpressive. And I wonder if one reason he did that was so that no man could say that Jesus didn't come for me. He wanted man's humility to be able to scale the depth of his humility. He didn't want man's uh, humility to try to climb to a majestic point. Man's pride has a harder time going down to where Jesus came. Jesus came for humble people, lowly people, unimpressive people, and all the rest too, but he came for, for them. Jesus is a life giver to all men. You know, most kings are high above their subjects. If there's any relationship at all, it's that we give them taxes and they let us live in their territory. If there's any relationship, it's that kind. Jesus is different. In fact, he's opposite. Jesus does not require us to first give to him. He requires us to accept from him. And absent from that acceptance, we have no life. We have no relationship with him. He requires a relationship in which he can give to us. Jesus said in John 6.33, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. He told Peter, If I don't wash your feet, you don't have a part with me. You must let me do something for you so that you can go to heaven with me. That's basically what he was saying. We must have a living relationship with the king. It's not enough to live in his territory. It's not enough to look like his subjects. It's not enough just to obey the laws. We must have a relationship with the king. And outside of that, there is no spiritual life. And out of that relationship, life flows to those that choose to enter this kingdom and follow him. The vine and the branches. The bread of heaven. And this may be sincere to think that God has done so much for me that now I need to do something for him. Well, he has done so much for us, but what he can still do for me now as a saved person is still much more important than whatever it is I could do for him. We serve him. We want to. We desire that. But we can never lose sight of the fact that my Christian life, my spiritual life, depends on continually receiving from him. That's what it rests on. There's a story. I'll conclude with this. And maybe you've read it. It's a well-known little story written by Max Lucado. Lucado. Uh, the Song of the King, maybe? Anybody ever read that book? Sort of hoped you hadn't. Maybe you did. It's a children's story. And so it's a very basic, uh, all the elements of a fairy tale kind of story. There was a king. The king had a son. The king had a daughter. And the king wanted to give his daughter in marriage and so the king put out this contest. Anybody that wanted to try it could take part in this contest. The contest was they needed to pass through the enchanted forest from this side to the other side, all the way through safely, and come out the other side. And so three people volunteered to try. The enchanted forest is an awful place, and people gasped when they heard it. 
There's no way you'll come out of there. It's an awful place. Nobody comes out of there alive. And so here are the rules. Uh, you go in that side, and the king's palace is on this side, and the king has a flute. And there's no other flute like it in the whole kingdom except for the one the king's son owns. The king's son and the king have the same kind of flute. And every morning and every evening, the king would walk out on his balcony and play his flute. And you could hear it. And that would be the way to know which direction to go through the forest. And so, uh, and the other thing was, you can choose one companion to go with you on your trip. Choose whoever you want to. You can take your companion and go. And so they went to make ready. And the, the first one chose the strongest man to go with him. The second one chose the wisest man to go with him. And the third one thought a while and he asked questions. So there's only two flutes like yours, yours and your son's. I can choose any companion I want, yes. And so the day came to go. And so they showed up. One had the strongest man, one had the, the wisest man, and, and one had a companion that was covered in armor. Couldn't see who he was. And to the shouts and cheers of all the people, they entered the forest and disappeared. And for days, the people waited. Every morning, they heard the king's flute up on the palace uh, balcony. Every evening, the same thing. For weeks, and nobody came out. And finally, the third one evening, the third man stumbled out of the forest, managed to make it up to the king's palace and present himself there as having won the challenge. And all the people ran together, and the king rang the bells, and there was going to be a great wedding. And uh, the people wondered, how you done it? How did you make it? What was it like in there? And the man said, it was awful in there. There was voices, and there was eyes, and there was laughing, and there were shrieks. Awful place to be. Nights were bad. But he said, the worst thing was the flutes. Every morning when the king was playing his flute, I heard flutes everywhere. Behind me, beside me, all around me were flutes playing. I didn't know which was the right flute. Evening's the same thing. And the people asked, well, how did you do it? How did you make it? And so he turned to his companion. The companion took off his helmet. And it was the king's son. And the man said, well, I heard that I could choose any companion. And I heard there was only one other flute like the king's flute in all the, all the land. So I took the king's son with me so he could play his flute every evening around the campfire he would play his flute and I would listen to that music so that when the king played his flute I could pick out which one it was among all the other noises and flutes around me and that's how I made it all the way through the forest now if you're a child you think that's a cute little story but if you're an adult you get the lesson you get the message I like to say two things that I believe this whole study teaches me about the kingdom of God. First is this. There is no room for a rebellious heart in God's kingdom. God can forgive sin. God can handle shortcomings. But a rebellious and a resistant heart does not belong in heaven and cannot exist in a good relationship. Here it cannot be part of God's kingdom. So that's number one. Number two is, Nobody gets to heaven except behind the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way. So it started from the throne of God. He introduced himself slowly. Here we are in the New Testament age with the fullest revelation of the kingdom that anyone has ever had. And we have at our disposal, and we have access to the Word, the Spirit, 
the Son of God, and He's the one we're going to follow. This whole picture starts at the throne of God, it ends at the throne of God, and those that make it, make it behind Him. And that's how we get home. So I just wanted to leave you with that tonight. May God bless you. I would ask an interest in your prayers this week as we decide or pray about what to share and what the needs are. And uh, maybe without further ado, we'll just stand together and have a closing prayer. Maybe our song leader has a verse of song we could sing afterwards. And then with that song, we'll be dismissed. Let's stand together tonight. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing yourself so clearly through your word and giving us a glimpse of what you're doing behind the scenes and how things are being revealed to us in due time. We believe the time is short. We want to be committed to the kingdom of God and following the Lord Jesus Christ honestly and sincerely and help us to hear his voice among all the chatter and noise around us. We want to make it safely home. Bless each one in this congregation tonight. Whatever needs are here, whatever desires and and aspirations, please meet those needs and speak to us tonight and this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.